Chapter Twenty Nine A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Nine A. The Last of Earth. Events of the Last Day of Lincoln's Life. The Last Cabinet Meeting. The Last Drive with Mrs. Lincoln. A Final Act of Pardon. The Fatal Evening. The visit to the theater, the assassins shot, a scene of horror. It is something to be ever gratefully remembered that the last day of Lincoln's life was filled with sunshine. His cares and burdens slipped from him like a garment, and his spirit was filled with a blessed and benignant peace. On the morning of that fatal Friday, the fourteenth day of April, the President had a long conversation at breakfast with his son Robert, then a member of Grant's staff who had just arrived from the front with additional particulars of Lee's surrender, of which event he had been a witness. The President listened with close attention to the interesting recital. Then, taking up a portrait of General Lee, which his son had brought him, he placed it on the table before him, where he scanned it long and thoughtfully. Presently he said, "'It is a good face. It is the face of a noble, brave man.' I am glad that the war is over at last." Looking upon Robert, he continued, "'Well, my son, you have returned safely from the front. The war is now closed, and we will soon live in peace with the brave men who have been fighting against us. I trust that the era of good feeling has returned, and that henceforth we shall live in harmony together.' After breakfast the President received Speaker Colfax, spending an hour or more in discussing his plans regarding the adjustment of matters in the South. This was followed by an interview with Hon. John P. Hale, the newly appointed minister to Spain, and by calls of congratulation from members of Congress and old friends from Illinois. Afterwards he took a short drive with General Grant, who had just come to the city to consult regarding the disbandment of the army and the parole of prisoners. The people were wild with enthusiasm, and wherever the President and General Grant appeared, they were greeted with cheers, the clapping of hands, waving of handkerchiefs, and every possible demonstration of delight. At the Cabinet meeting held at noon, the President was accompanied by General Grant. The meeting is thus described by one who was present, Secretary Wells. Congratulations were interchanged and earnest inquiry was made whether any information had been received from General Sherman. General Grant, who was invited to remain, said he was expecting hourly to hear from Sherman, and had a good deal of anxiety on the subject. The President remarked that the news would come soon and come favorably. He had no doubt, for he had last night his usual dream, which had preceded nearly every important event of the war. I inquired the particulars of this remarkable dream. He said it was in my department, it related to the water, that he seemed to be in a singular and indescribable vessel, but always the same, and that he was moving with great rapidity toward a dark and indefinite shore, that he had had this singular dream preceding the firing on Sumter, the battles of Bull Run, Antietam, Gettysburg, Stone River, Vicksburg, Wilmington, etc. General Grant remarked with some emphasis and asperity that Stone River was no victory, that a few such victories would have ruined the country, and he knew of no important results from it. The President said that perhaps he should not altogether agree with him, 
but whatever might be the facts, his singular dream preceded that fight. Victory did not always follow his dream, but the event and results were important. He had no doubt that a battle had taken place, or was about being fought. "'And Johnston will be beaten, for I had this strange dream again last night. It must relate to Sherman. My thoughts are in that direction, and I know of no other very important event which is likely just now to occur.' Great events, adds Mr. Wells in his diary, did indeed follow, for within a few hours the good and gentle as well as truly great man who narrated his dream closed forever his earthly career. After the cabinet meeting the President took a drive with Mrs. Lincoln, expressing a wish that no one should accompany them. His heart was filled with a solemn joy which awoke memories of the past to mingle with hopes for the future, and in this subdued moment he desired to be alone with the one who stood nearest to him in human relationship. In the course of their talk together he said, "'Mary, we have had a hard time of it since we came to Washington, but the war is over, and with God's blessing we may hope for four years of peace and happiness, and then we will go back to Illinois and pass the rest of our lives in quiet.' He spoke, says Mr. Arnold, of his old Springfield home and recollections of his early days, his little brown cottage, the law office, the courtroom, the green bag for his briefs and law papers, his adventures when riding the circuit, came thronging back to him. The tension under which he had for so long been kept was removed, and he was like a boy out of school. "'We have laid by,' said he to his wife, "'some money, and during this term we will try and save up more, but shall not have enough to support us.' We will go back to Illinois, and I will open up a law office at Springfield or Chicago, and practice law, and at least do enough to help give us a livelihood." Such were the dreams, the daydreams of Lincoln, on the last day of his earthly life. Mr. Neal, the President's private secretary, states that between three and four o'clock of this day he had occasion to seek the President to procure his signature to a paper. I found, says Mr. Neal, that he had retired to the private parlour of the house for lunch, while I was looking over the papers on his table to see if I could find the desired commission. He came back, eating an apple. I told him what I was looking for, and as I talked he placed his hand upon the bell-pole. I said, For whom are you going to ring? Placing his hand upon my coat, he spoke but two words, Andrew Johnson. Then, I said, I will come in again. As I was leaving the room, the vice-president had been ushered in, and the president advanced and took him by the hand. Charles A. Dana, the assistant secretary of war, says that his last recollections of President Lincoln are indelibly associated with the seditious Jacob Thompson. Late in the afternoon, says Mr. Dana, a dispatch was received at the War Department from the Provost Marshal of Portland, Maine, saying that he had received information that Jacob Thompson would arrive in Portland during that night, in order to take there the Canadian steamer which was to sail for Liverpool. On reading this dispatch to Mr. Stanton, the latter said, "'Order him to be arrested. But no, you had better take it over to the President.' I found Mr. Lincoln in the inner room of his business office at the White House, with his coat off, washing his hands preparatory to a drive. "'Hello!' said he, 
"'What is it?' Listening to the dispatch, he asked, "'What does Stanton say?' "'He thinks he ought to be arrested,' I replied. "'Well,' he continued, drawling his words, "'I rather guess not. When you have an elephant on your hands and he wants to run away, better let him run.'" During the afternoon the President signed a pardon for a soldier sentenced to be shot for desertion, remarking as he did so, "'Well, I think the boy can do us more good above-ground than underground." He also approved an application for the discharge, on taking the oath of allegiance of a Southern prisoner, on whose petition he wrote, "'Let it be done.'" This act of mercy was his last official order. It had been decided early in the day that the President and Mrs. Lincoln would attend Ford's theatre in the evening, to witness the play of The American Cousin. Lincoln had invited General Grant to accompany his party to the theatre, saying that the people would expect to see him and should not be disappointed. But the General had declined, as Mrs. Grant was anxious to start that afternoon to visit their children, who were at school in Burlington, New Jersey. As the hour approached for leaving for the theatre, the President was engaged in a conversation with two friends, Speaker Colfax and Honorable George Ashman of Massachusetts. The business on which they had met not being concluded, the President gave Mr. Ashman a card on which he had written these words, "'Allow Mr. Ashman and friend to come in at nine a.m. to-morrow. A. Lincoln.' He then turned to Mr. Colfax, saying, "'You are going with Mrs. Lincoln and me to the theatre, I hope?' Mr. Colfax pleaded other engagements, when Lincoln remarked, Mr. Sumner has the gavel of the Confederate Congress, which he got at Richmond to hand to the Secretary of War, but I insisted then that he must give it to you, and you tell him for me to hand it over." He then rose, but seemed reluctant to go, expressing a half-determination to delay a while longer. It was undoubtedly to avoid disappointing the audience to whom his presence had been promised that he went to the playhouse that night. At the door he stopped and said to Speaker Colfax, who was about to leave for the Pacific coast, "'Colfax, do not forget to tell the people in the mining regions, as you pass through, what I told you this morning about the development when peace comes. I will telegraph you at San Francisco.'" It was nine o'clock when the presidential party reached the theatre. The place was crowded. Many ladies in rich and gay costumes, officers in their uniforms, many well-known citizens, young folks, the usual clusters of gaslights, the usual magnetism of so many people, cheerful, with perfumes, music of violins and flutes, and over all, and saturating all, that vast, vague wonder, victory, the nation's victory, the triumph of the Union, filling the air, the thought, the sense, with exhilaration more than all perfumes. As the President entered, he was greeted with tremendous cheers, to which he responded with genial courtesy. The box reserved for him at the right of the stage, a little above the floor, was draped and festooned with flags. As the party were seated, the daughter of Senator Harris of New York occupied the corner nearest the stage. Next her was Mrs. Lincoln, and behind them sat the President and Major Rathbone, the former being nearest the door. In his quiet chair he sate pure of malice or guile, stainless of fear or hate, and there played a pleasant smile on the rough and careworn face, 
for his heart was all the while on means of mercy and grace. The brave old flag drooped o'er him, a fold in the hard hand lay. He looked perchance on the play, but the scene was a shadow before him, for his thoughts were far away. It was half-past ten o'clock, and the audience was absorbed in the progress of the play, when suddenly a pistol-shot, loud and sharp, rang through the theatre. All eyes were instantly directed toward the President's box, whence the report proceeded. A moment later the figure of a man, holding a smoking pistol in one hand, and a dagger in the other, appeared at the front of the President's box, and sprang to the stage some eight or ten feet below, shouting as he did so, "'Sic semper tyrannis!' He fell as he struck the stage, but quickly recovering himself, sprang through the side-wings, and escaped from the theatre by a rear door. At the moment of the assassination a single actor, Mr. Hawk, was on the stage. In his account of the tragical event, he says, When I heard the shot fired, I turned, looked up at the President's box, heard the man exclaim, Six Semper Tyrannus, saw him jump from the box, seized the flag on the staff, and drop to the stage. He slipped when he struck the stage, but got upon his feet in a moment, brandished a large knife, crying, The South shall be free, turned his face in the direction where I stood, and I recognized him as John Wilkes Booth. He ran towards me, and I, seeing the knife, thought I was the one he was after, and ran off the stage and up a flight of stairs. He made his escape out of a door directly in the rear of the theatre, mounted a horse, and rode off. The above all occurred in the space of a quarter of a minute and at the time I did not know the President was shot. Scarcely had the horror-stricken audience witnessed the leap and flight of the assassin when a woman's shriek pierced through the theatre, recalling all eyes to the President's box. The scene that ensued is described with singular vividness by the poet Walt Whitman, who was present. A moment's hush, a scream, the cry of murder, Mrs. Lincoln leaning out of the box, with ashy cheeks and lips, with involuntary cry, pointing to the retreating figure. "'He has killed the President!' And still a moment's strange, incredulous suspense, and then the deluge, then that mixture of horror, noises, uncertainty, the sound somewhere back of a horse's hoofs clattering with speed. The people burst through chairs and railing, and break them up, that noise adds to the queerness of the scene. There is inextricable confusion and terror. Women faint. Feeble persons fall and are trampled on. Many cries of agony are heard. The broad stage suddenly fills to suffocation with a dense and motley crowd, like some horrible carnival. The audience rush generally upon it. At least the strong men do. The actors and actresses are there in their play costumes and painted faces, with mortal fright showing through the rouge, some trembling, some in tears, the screams and calls, confused talk, redoubled, trebled. Two or three manage to pass up water from the stage to the President's box. Others try to clamber up. Amidst all this a party of soldiers, two hundred or more, hearing what is done, suddenly appear. They storm the house, inflamed with fury, literally charging the audience with fixed bayonets, muskets, and pistols, shouting, "'Clear out! Clear out!' And in the midst of that pandemonium of senseless haste, the infuriated soldiers, the audience, the stage, its actors and actresses, its paints and spangles and gaslights, the life-blood from those veins, the best and sweetest of the land, drips slowly down, 
and death's ooze already begins its little bubbles on the lips. It appears that Booth the assassin had long been plotting the murder of the President, and was awaiting a favorable moment for its execution. He had visited the theater at half-past eleven on the morning of the fourteenth, and learned that a box had been taken for the President that evening. He engaged a fleet horse for a saddle-ride in the afternoon, and left it at a convenient place. In the evening he rode to the theater, and, leaving the animal in charge of an accomplice, entered the house. Making his way to the door of the President's box, and taking a small derringer pistol in one hand, and a double-edged dagger in the other, he thrust his arm into the entrance, where the President, sitting in an armchair, presented to his view the back and side of his head. A flash, a sharp report, a puff of smoke, and the fatal bullet had entered the President's brain. End of chapter 29a Recording by Bill Borst